My name is Eric Hovis. I'm the lead pastor here. Um, if it's your first time with us, we're so glad you're with us today. Um, we've been journeying through the book of John, and we've been praying for people to believe in Jesus and for also for others to find full life in Jesus. You know, last week uh, we looked at the wedding where Jesus turned water to wine, and we saw several different layers to the story. Uh, you know, we see Jesus, uh, we saw he has the power to transform. Uh, we also saw the theme of joy. And then this week we see a completely different side of Jesus. Uh, with a popular story where Jesus gets angry uh, that has led to all sorts of memes, uh, justifying things like yelling at your kids or throwing a tantrum in the workplace, which let me say is absolutely not where we're going today, okay? Uh, yes, this is a story where Jesus gets, uh, is, is, is getting angry, but just like last week, this story is about far more than Jesus getting angry. Um, and so this is what we're going to do today. We're gonna, I'm going to read the story. We're going to take about 15 minutes and explain what's going on at kind of a basic surface-level understanding. Um, and I'm going to need to take some time and explain and teach a few significant things. Uh, and then on the second half of our time, um, I'm going to finally tell you where we're going with the main idea uh, and four points um, and excuse the cheesy jokes, but we're getting close to Halloween, so I'm going to keep you in the dark for a few minutes uh, with where we're going. Um, so let's get, go ahead and get uh, into chapter two. Picking up after the wedding that we saw last week, looking, uh, so look with me starting in verse 12. Um, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brother and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple. Uh, with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they had believed in the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So before we dive into this, um, I want to address Jesus's anger because I think this can be troubling for some. You know, we see Jesus here with a whip of cords driving out people out of the temple and turning over tables in anger. And as I mentioned, today we're seeing a different side of Jesus. And this is one of those stories that makes people kind of scratch their head about Jesus because it seems out of character for the meek and gentle, loving Jesus that we often think of. You know, up to this point, Jesus has been characterized as the Lamb of God and very intentionally at that. You know, up to this point, uh, you know, the very first thing John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus in chapter 1, verse 29, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he says it again in verse 36. He's saying, Behold the Lamb of God. And so up to this point in the book of John, we see Jesus characterized as a lamb, which typically denotes gentle and calm. You know, when you see a lamb, you don't typically think a wild and crazy animal that's going to bite your head off. Like, that's just not what comes to mind. No, you think, you look at it and you think, oh, that's soft and fluffy. Like we put lambs in baby nurseries 
And we give, uh, we give them as stuffed animals for small kids to snuggle with as they go to sleep and tell people to count them uh, to relax and go to sleep. And oftentimes when we think of Jesus, this is how we think of him, as gentle and docile and meek, which is absolutely true. But in our, in, our, in our story today, that's not ex- exactly what Jesus is portraying. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Jesus comes in with a whip of cords turning over tables. And so he doesn't exactly give the impression of a gentle, docile, snuggly little lamb. And what we'll see today and what the author is starting to show us is that, yes, Jesus is the lamb of God, but he is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. Yes, Jesus is a gentle lamb, but he's also a fierce lion. And maybe this seems strange to you because it shows Jesus is angry. But when we think about of the character of God uh, as slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, when we think of the fruits of the spirit of, of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. And what we see in our text today seems to be totally against all of that. Like maybe thinking, how does this all work together? Like how can Jesus, who is perfect in love, also be angry? And I think we get this more than we may realize. Because when we love something or someone like our spouse or our children or a friend or a sibling, when those we love are wronged, love oftentimes then expresses itself in anger. For example, if I as a father watched someone kidnap one of my children and I sat back and I was patient and gentle and kind and did nothing, it would appear as if I, was, if I didn't care and I was just apathetic about my children. But no, love in that moment is me chasing that person down, kicking their tail, smacking them in the face a couple of times, telling them Jesus loves them, and then walking off into the sunset uh, with my child held tightly in my arms. That's love. Now, I, as their father, would do that because I love my children. And so as we look at this story, it's the same thing. Jesus' anger shown here is more so revealing his love. And it's not for the people in the temple. No, he's showing his perfect love towards God the Father. And so at a first glance of this story, yes, we see Jesus get angry. But as we dig into it, this is more of a reflection of his perfect love. But as I I already said, this story is so much more than Jesus being angry. Um, And because of that, you know, anger is not the direction we're going today. You know, I wanted to bring it up just so we're not confused by it. But rather, I want to ask, why is Jesus angry? This should cause us to ask questions and be curious, and it should cause us to want to dig more into our text. And so like I said we would, we're going to go back through this story. We're going to go a few lines at a time so we can kind of wrap our heads around a few of the the important things, um, do some uh, heavy teaching for about 15 minutes, and then on the back side of this, uh, we're going to um, do like Jesus did and flip this thing upside down. And look at at this from a few different angles uh, with four different points. So look at verses 12 to 14. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So there are a few things here I want us to notice. First, Jesus, his mother, and his brothers and his disciples were in Capernaum for a few days. They were after this wedding we saw last week. And they journeyed down to Capernaum to Jerusalem during the time of Passover. Now, I want you guys just to imagine this scene with me. Like, this is story time, okay? Uh, This would have been a good 20-mile trip. 
In the springtime, walking along the rolling hills beside the deep blue sea of Galilee, coming out of the fishing, ta- fishing town of Capernaum. And remember, they were coming off of the joy of the wedding. And likely they had this springtime weather uh, and they were matched with the excitement and the expectation of the Passover season. And just to point out, Passover was a celebration. They were remembering and celebrating the redemption and salvation of God's people who escaped the slavery of Pharaoh when God passed over the firstborn sons by sacrificing a lamb and putting the blood of the lamb over the doorposts and saving them. So this Passover season was a memorial and celebration of salvation and redemption of God's people. But during this time, preparation for Passover was typically about a month. You know, much like our Christmas season, uh, there is a season of preparing an expectation and expectancy for Passover. In in the city of Jerusalem during the Passover season, uh, they likely had everything fixed up. All the roads were were probably repaired, expecting an increase of business and commerce. Some have estimated that close to 2 million people would have been there during this time. So although it was a beautiful journey to Jerusalem, it was likely a crowded journey for Jesus, and I'd assume a, a bit state fair-like with bustling crowds as, as once they got there. And if you can imagine with me, the closer Jesus got to the temple, it's very likely the more crowded it got and the more fair-like it got uh, with trinkets and foods, with all sorts of religious and ceremonial garments and goods for sale. I mean, I just imagine the sounds and the sights and the smells of all the various goats and sheeps along the path and the haze of the smoke from incense burning mixed in with like the pop-up markets with goods and vegetables for those traveling. Uh, You know, it says when Jesus got to the temple in verse 14, uh, they found people selling oxen and sheep and pigeons because these were the animals that were used for sacrifice. And various sources tell from rabbinical literature that inspectors were trained for 18 months to be able to distinguish between clean and unclean animals which, let's just say, it gave them a monopoly on the whole gig. And these money changers that we see in verse 14 were people that would exchange currencies, uh, much like we do when we travel. Except it wasn't the government doing this, it was those involved with the temple that were managing the whole thing, because they they had just built this massive temple, and they were trying to finish it, and they're also trying to keep it up. Uh, and let's just say it wasn't cheap to exchange money in the temple with these money changers. Like it, them doing this was putting a lot of money into the money and into the temple's treasury. You know, some have said that the high priests were actually known to sell franchises for these money-changing booths and animal sacrifices at the temple because a lot of people wanted to celebrate and honor God, and they made a good business out of it. And so Jesus walks into the temple, and let's just say he's not happy. In fact, as we've said, he's angry. Again, look what he says in verses 15 and 16. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So Jesus, he makes a whip, and in his anger, he drives everybody out. And I just imagine, I just imagine the crowd in the scene. With all of these people and all of these animals and the sheep and the ox and Jesus with his whip just driving them out. Like he is straight cleaning house and he is getting everybody out of the temple. I mean, he takes the coins from the money changers and he just dumps them out, it says, uh, and then he turns over their table. I mean, just the scene with all the money uh, everywhere, all over the ground, the tables turned upside down, sheep and goats probably making a big mess on the way out, making all sorts of noises because of how stressed out they are because Jesus is driving them out with a whip. And then Jesus points out the people with the pigeons. I mean, the poor pigeons. 
Like the innocent little pigeons, it says in verse 16. Like he, take, he says, take these things away. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. Like Jesus is angry. There's no subtlety to this. Like he's making a full-on scene and he is getting a, a, a stern point across. But again, why is he angry? What point is Jesus making? And in order for us, us to understand why Jesus is so angry, we need to wrap our heads around the importance of the temple. Because this, te- this temple that Jesus kind of walks into, this temple, it has a long-standing and a unique history. And this temple, it's a big deal. Like in a lot of ways, this temple, it symbolizes a certain, the centrality of their faith. This is where people would come to worship and meet and hear and pray to God. When people wanted to be cleansed and purified, they would go to the temple. I'm not going to go into the whole history of this, but this temple that Jesus walks, to, walks into was actually the second temple that was built. Because the first temple that King Solomon built, that King David longed for, we see in the Old Testament, was later destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar over 500 years prior to this. But then even backing up before the first temple, there was the tabernacle this walk that we talked about in the book of Exodus that we looked at this past summer, which was like a temporary house, temporary temple. So it was like a, a really big tent. And inside of the temporary, uh, this tabernacle uh, was what was called the Ark of the Covenant. And in each of these buildings, the, the tabernacle and the two temples, these structures, they're all, they were all a big deal. And they all represented the presence of God on earth. But all that to say, the temple that Jesus walked into was known to be a place of worship. It was God's house. It was supposed to be a place where heaven and earth collided and met. The temple was a big deal. And so when Jesus, God's son, the very presence of God on earth, when Jesus shows up, he didn't find any worship in the temple. No, he found a house of trade. He found a place of hypocrisy and greed. He found a place where God was deduced to a mere transaction or trade. In God's temple, God was not worshipped. God was being used for greedy gain, and it made Jesus angry. Which is why we read, why we read uh, verse 17. Look what it says. It says, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Which, that's a quote from Psalm 69.9. It says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. In essence, Jesus is angry because of how Jesus loves God's house, which was supposed to be the temple. And the disciples knew the temple was known as God's house, and Jesus was consumed with zeal and passion for God's house. He was consumed with it because God was consumed with it. And so this is where God was worshipped. And this is where God would speak to his people. And this is where God would meet with his people. And Jesus sees a place that was supposed to be a place of worship turned into a great big business opportunity. And in seeing all this, Jesus was angry and he decides to clean out his father's house. Just like the wedding last week uh, wasn't an accident in the placement of the story, our story this week also is not an accident either. Because Jesus was making a point that what this temple symbolized was no longer working. Something needed to change about the temple. God's house needed to be restored. Um, which, and so all this backstory and teaching, this finally leads us to our main idea, which is Jesus came to restore his father's house. Jesus came to restore his father's house. This, you know, this story is not to emphasize the anger of Jesus. 
It's not meant to justify being angry and flipping tables and driving people out with a whip of cords, but rather Jesus' anger should put our antennas up and ask why. Because for Jesus to do this is a really big deal. And as we've said, the reason Jesus is doing this is because Jesus has a deep love and devotion to God, his Father, because Jesus loves what his Father loves, and he loves his Father's house. And so Jesus is coming in and beginning to show, hey, something here has got to change. Now, I don't, I don't know if you've ever watched HGTV, you know, with all the different house shows, <laughs> you know, like Fixer Upper or Love It or, or List It or Flip or Flop, anybody? Great show. You know, I love these shows. They're great. You know, me and, me and Kelly, we've renovated a few of our past homes. We always watch these shows, and I always kind of imagine us as Chip and Joanna Gaines. You know, Kelly had the style and the vision, and I was kind of like Chip. You know, I was the guy that would make it happen. The only problem was Kelly was a much better Joanna than I was a Chip. I'm a much, I'm a much better handyman in my head than in reality. Like, I see things on YouTube, and it looks way easier than it really is. I do something about five times uh, before I get it right. <laughs> you know, but I, I just want us to imagine uh, that you inherit a house. Someone's house uh, seems beautiful on the outside. Uh, you're excited and you've been inspired by HGTV, uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines, and you get into the house and you realize, oh wait, there are a lot of problems here, like major problems. You know, like the, the, the foundation and the structure, like there are problems here. And then you'd have to decide, do we tear it down and start over? Or do you just overhaul the entire thing? Like, do you completely renovate it? Or do you just start all over and tear it all down? And in some ways, I think we can say that's what's happening here with Jesus. He walks into his father's house and he doesn't like what he sees. But I want to get back to the story because with kind of with this idea of renovation in mind, because we start to peel back the curtain as to why Jesus did this. Because, of course, this has caused some curiosity for all who saw what Jesus did with his whip turning over tables and, and also turning over tables. Because look at verse 18. It says, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for us doing these things? Now, I don't know about you, uh, but this seems like a strange response. Like, they didn't get mad at Jesus for turning over the tables or having a whip. Like, the authorities, like, they didn't come in, the authorities didn't come in after him. I mean, you would think if he made a big scene like this, something would have happened. Like, the guards or the authorities would have come in and tried to stop him or do something, but that didn't happen. Which, in some ways, shows the level of Jesus' rule in this temple. It displays Jesus' authority that he can have his way in his father's house, the temple that Jesus is in charge. But look what Jesus says back in verse 19. This is so interesting. Jesus answered them and said, uh, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So Jesus is saying, destroy this temple. We're going to knock it down and start over. Uh, we're going to kind of start uh, our renovation project, which is, if you didn't notice, is a bold claim because they just built this big, beautiful temple. Because look what they said back in verse 20. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. They were like, man, that's a really bold statement. It took 46 years to build this thing and you think you can build it back in three days. But then I love what the author does. Uh, he gives us some insight to what Jesus really means here. Look at verses 21 to 22. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said, he, what, 
that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken when John is so that's that's what he said and so what John is telling us is that when he said he would destroy the temple he wasn't talking about the physical temple like this this temple that King Herod built that was uh, driven by King Herod. No, he was talking about a different temple. In verse 21, Jesus was talking about the temple of his own body. And so us today, looking back on this, we know that Jesus was killed, uh, crucified, and three days later raised from the dead, which is what he's referencing in verse 20. But those he spoke with, they had no clue what he was talking about. Again, this entire story is not pointing at Jesus' anger. No, this story is pointing us to the temple. This story is pointing us ahead to the resurrection or us looking back on the resurrection. And so get this, if the wedding last week pointed us to Jesus' shed blood on the cross, then our story this week that follows it points us to the resurrection of Jesus. Like all of John 2 from last week and this week is not Uh, Just a story about a wedding and Jesus turning water to wine and then a completely separate story of Jesus turning over tables. No, all of John 2 from last week and this week is beginning to illustrate and paint a picture of the full story of Christianity. Where Jesus would walk this earth, die on the cross, have his blood shed, and then three days later be raised from the dead. So this entire uh, story of Jesus walking into the temple and making a scene in anger of what he finds in the temple, it points us to the resurrection And not just that Jesus rose from the dead, but also what would follow after the resurrection. Yes, Jesus comes in and flips tables upside down, but at a much bigger picture, Jesus is coming in and flipping this entire idea of the temple upside down. And here in our story, we see Jesus alluding to that and the disciples affirming it when we see here that Jesus' body is pointing us to the temple. So all of that said, as our foundation... That now leads us to our first point. Number one, Jesus is the new temple. So think about this. Everything that happened at the temple, it now happens through Jesus Christ. When we hear that popular Bible verse of John 14, 6, it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The disciples' first thought would have likely been, wait, what about the temple? Like, isn't that how we get to God? And Jesus in John 2 is beginning to show this whole idea of the temple, it's being completely renovated. Again, let's think about the temple. Because in the temple, they prayed to God, they worshiped, they confessed sin, they made sacrifices to be cleansed of their sins, they heard from God. I, I guess we could say in the temple is where heaven and earth collided and met. And so if you wanted to meet with God, you went to the temple. Like you went to that stone structure, the big building. And now here in John 2, Jesus is beginning to show the world, hey, everything we did, you once did in the temple, you will now do through Jesus. So if you want to go to God the Father, you won't go through the temple. We go to God through Jesus. You know what's crazy about all this? When Jesus showed up to the temple in John 2, you know what he found? He found hypocrisy. He found greed. He found God deduced to a mere transaction being reduced as, a, uh, reduced as a means for gain. And as we read that and hear that, I wonder how much of this might be true for us. Like if God were to show up in our lives, if we took a peek under, the, our, ho- under our hoods, 
would he find hypocrisy and greed? Would he find us using God as merely transactional and maybe just as stale? That stings, doesn't it? (laughs) I mean, the things we do in the dark, do they match up with what we proclaim in the light? Are we the same person on Sunday that we are on Friday or Saturday? You know, this, this is heavy and this is weighty, right? I know it is because this was me for a time about 15 years ago. Like, I know what it's like to have a wrestling in your soul with hypocrisy. But, it, but in, in reality, at some level, this is true for everyone. Oftentimes, we know what's right. We know our hearts can be greedy. We know we can have mixed motives. We know we can be, the one, uh, we can be one person in one place, an entirely different person in a, to, a di- to, to a completely different group of people. I mean, everything Jesus found in the temple with empty religiosity that's merely mechanical and transactional, like mixed with hypocrisy and greed. I mean, if Jesus looked at us today, he would likely find pieces of what he found in the temple just in different ways in many of our lives. I don't know about you, but this is like really unsettling for me. Like it, it brings on feelings of shame and fear or judgment or, or just a whole host of other things. And, and I, I don't like it. Maybe it feels like Jesus is going to come at us with a whip of cords and come in with anger and just turn over the tables of our life. Do you know what Jesus does with us because of the gospel? He does exactly what we see in this story. (laughs) Jesus comes into our life and he drives out the very things that hinder us from worshiping. He drives out the very things that hinder us from seeing and experience the fullness of God, which includes things like shame or guilt or fear or condemnation. He, dri- he wants to drive it all out. And so may, not, we, we, may, we not let, uh, let, may we not lose those things, like let these things hinder our worship of God, while at the same time, we know we all have these things that Jesus wants to drive out of our lives. And you know what the gospel tells us? If you're not a Christian, well, this is such good news for you. And if you are a Christian, this is still good news for you. Because we see in the gospel that Jesus sees these things in our lives that we all have. He knows we're not honoring God. He sees our hypocrisy and greed and idolatry. But yet what the gospel tells us is that, yes, Jesus takes that whip of cords in his anger, just like he did in the temple. But yet instead of driving us out with the whip of cords like we deserve, Rather, the gospel tells us at the cross, Jesus took the punishment we deserve being whipped himself with the whip of cords. Jesus came into the temple as God uh, in great anger, where at the cross, he took God's anger for us on our behalf. In, In the temple, we saw Jesus driving out the sacrifices with the whip of cords, but the gospel shows us at the cross, Jesus was the sacrifice that took the whippings for us. Again, everything we see done at the temple became, uh, became true through Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus is our new temple. But you know what? You know what is miraculous about all of this? After Jesus' resurrection, as the story points us to, Jesus continues to build his father's house. Yes, Jesus is the new temple, but after Jesus' resurrection, Paul tells us in Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 3.16 that those who believe in Jesus, that we are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in us. And so may we not lose sight of this. Like the new house of God is now the hearts of God's people. Before Jesus, uh, before Jesus, God lived in a structure on earth. He was housed in a temple 
But then Jesus came to earth and begins to show us that everything that the temple once did will now happen through Jesus. But then Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. And after the resurrection, as we see in Acts 2, God then enters into the hearts of people. Christian, hear this today. If you have put your faith in Jesus, the spirit of the living God is living inside of you. Like your heart is his house. Which leads us to our second point. Number two, through faith, our hearts become God's house. And you know what that means for us based off of what we see in our story? When God comes into our hearts as his temple, you know what that means? It means he has authority over our lives. Just like Jesus showed and revealed his authority in the temple by walking in and doing whatever he wished. God does the same thing in our hearts and lives. And you know what? This is so good and also so hard all at the same time. Because God sees our mess. But he won't let us stay in our mess. Because when God comes and takes up residence in our hearts and makes our hearts his home, you know what he does? He comes in. Just like we see in our story, he comes in and he starts cleaning house and he does it with authority. And you know why he does that? Look at verse 23 to 25 in John 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Okay, this is bizarre. Like we just read, Jesus did not entrust himself to people because he knew what was inside of them. But this was then before the cross, like what we now know. And for us today, Jesus still knows what's inside of us. Like he still knows all of our mess. He still knows what's inside of man. He sees the hypocrisy and greed. But this time, because of the gospel and the cross, Jesus now comes into our life anyways. He doesn't first clean us up and then come in No, he sees all of our mess. He comes into our lives and then he starts cleaning house. And he starts cleaning our hearts, our lives with authority. Like this is the evidence that the spirit of God is living inside of us because he starts cleaning house. Like Jesus sees what uh, what you did last night, whatever happened. Jesus knows what happened this past week. Jesus knows all those thoughts we've had or you've had. He sees the greed, the hypocrisy. Jesus knows all the struggles and frustrations you've experienced and the grumpiness. He sees it and knows it all. And you know what he does? He starts to poke at it and point at it and bring conviction to our hearts. And it feels like the things in our hearts are being whipped and tables are turned over like chaos is happening, just like what happened in this temple with Jesus. And this doesn't happen as so we'll sit in shame and guilt, but rather the Spirit does this. Listen, the Spirit, Jesus does this to us because he loves his Father's house. Just as our passage says from Psalm 69.9, zeal for his house consumes him. So Jesus convicts us and he pokes at our heart. The spirit works in our lives, driving out what shouldn't be there because listen, he loves God. And also because he deeply loves you and me. He loves his new home. God loves his house. And if our hearts are his house, he will do whatever it takes to clean up what shouldn't be there. Because God is zealous for our entire hearts to be consumed with him. God will do whatever it takes 
to drive out what should not be there. Maybe we could say this. Jesus will do whatever it takes to drive out what distracts God's people from worshiping him. God's temple, God's house, our hearts were made to be a place of worship. And God wants to clean up his house and make it consumed with worship. And notice, like the order of all of this is so important. God doesn't say, clean up your heart and then he'll come in. <laughs> no. Jesus first comes into our hearts. Like we, 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 we profess faith in Jesus. He makes us his residence, our hearts his residence. And then Jesus, not us, like no, the spirit of God cleans us out. And so let me ask you, what part of your heart and life is Jesus working on right now? Because if Jesus is in our hearts, he's cleaning his house. He doesn't sit idle in our hearts. And you know what might be a good place to start? to see where Jesus is kind of working around and poking? What parts of your life does it seem like has a whip of cords behind it? Uh, maybe with a couple stinks. Like with the tables turned over, maybe feeling like everything is all over the place. Somewhere in there, uh, God is likely working. And you know what? Uh, and it's typically the places of our life that seem most chaotic, where God is actually doing his greatest work in our lives. And in that place is likely where he's poking around and cleaning house. And let me remind you, it doesn't always feel good. But if God is working there, if the Spirit of God is working in your life, it may not feel good, but it is certainly for our good. Because God is building and restoring the house of your heart. Be all this, this temple thing, it, it keeps going. Because when Jesus comes to take ownership of God's house, to rebuild it and restore it, he does like my wife. When she's decorating for a party, God goes above and beyond. Like he does this thing extravagantly. That's what my wife does. And so, yes, Jesus is the new temple. Yes, God makes our hearts his home. He makes our hearts a temple. But you know what else we see in Scripture? What, what, what we see is a picture of God's house. It's the church. Which leads us to number three. The church is God's spiritual house. We see this picture in 1 Peter chapter 2 where Jesus is the cornerstone, the primary building block of God's house. And those who have put their faith in Jesus, 1 Peter 2, 5 calls us living stones. And so without a doubt, God's house is our hearts individually, but even more so us together also collectively. You know, this is so important. The Christian life is not about our own individual hearts and lives. It's not only about that. It's also about us collectively, our collective lives together for all of those who profess faith in Jesus. Christianity and following Jesus is not something we do in isolation. It is an entire community-wide project. Listen, if we want to grow as a Christian, we need to belong to a local church. If it's not New City, you need to belong and be accountable and committed to a healthy, gospel-preaching, Jesus-loving church. Because the local church is how God grows and builds up and encourages and exhorts his people. God's design to grow his people is with brothers and sisters deeply involved in our life that are also devoted to Jesus. We all need people further along than us, and we also all need people to be carrying others along with us. This is what the church does. This is why groups and serving are so vitally important for us as a church. Y'all, we need our groups. 
We need people older than us, encouraging us and, and speaking life into us. And we also uh, so desperately want to, we want you to, de- to serve on Sundays, not because we need you to do some sort of task, but because it's a constant reminder that we're all part of the body, that we're all doing this together, serving others without a doubt, I would argue is way more for you than it is for others. God not only calls us to do it in scripture, but Secular studies also show that those who serve and volunteer are just generally more joyful people. And so for us, serving is just, uh, it's just another way to rub shoulders with more people and to get to know more people. And so if you call New City Church home, know that uh, you are in a collective family that is growing all together as a family. When you hurt, we all hurt. When you celebrate, we all celebrate. Like, this is so important. The church is not a building. The church is not a service. No, the church is God's collective people that are a sign, just like the temple, showing a piece of heaven on earth. Y'all, we desperately need each other in our lives. God uses each of us in our lives and cleans up his house, his church, all together as a collective community. Again, Jesus came to restore his father's house in New City Church. He desires to do that with us as well. Because without a doubt, we're a family that needs each other. There's one more part of this restoration project uh, for his father's house that I want to point to. As we start to kind of land the plane and close out our time. And it's the finished product. Number four, God's finished house. We've seen that Jesus came to restore and rebuild his father's house. And the Bible gives us a final picture of his finished house. But you know what's interesting? It's not actually a house. At the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21, at the end of the Bible, we see a picture of a city. We see a description of a beautiful wall around the city with beautiful gates, with incredible stones and jewels. And it describes the streets as as streets of pure gold. And then it says very distinctively in Revelation 21, 22, it says there was no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Again, Jesus is the new temple. While at the same time, there will not be a temple structure, there won't be a physical house. Instead, Jesus's glory will shine on the entire earth, not because of a building or a structure, but because Jesus is there. And you know who will be in this new city? In this city that is to come, people from all over the world who have trusted in Jesus, who have put their faith in Jesus, and it will be a global city filled with worshipers from every people, language, tribe, and nation. And in this city where there is no temple, this is when heaven and earth have fully come together and collided and fully meet, where God speaks and communes fully with his people, where God is fully worshiped, where his people are completely clean, where hypocrisy and greed are no more. This is where we will see and be in God's full and everlasting presence. You know what this means for us today? This means that we have a blueprint for God's finished project. And as and we, as the people of God, the very people that God has made his home inside of our hearts, we know that God is rebuilding and restoring his house, and we know the end goal. Like, we know the final product. And so while the Spirit of God is living inside of us and cleaning up our hearts, at the same time, he is delightfully using us to get to the finished product of seeing people from all over the world worshiping Jesus. And do you know why? 
Because God is consumed with restoring his house. And God's purpose and means to get his finished product, to get to that final city and see the fully restored house of God is to come into our lives, have his way in our hearts, taking full authority in our lives. And he then takes us, gives us a mission and a purpose and works through us filled with his spirit in order to work towards everything being fully and completely restored after over the entire earth. Listen, the mission of the church is to finish building God's global house of worship. Y'all, this story is not only about Jesus getting angry. This story is about Jesus being consumed with seeing his father's house restored to its full potential. This story is about Jesus marking the beginning of his renovation project to complete God's house of global worship where all things will be made completely new. New city, as we labor to that end. May we be encouraged knowing that in the process, God is transforming our lives, that he lives inside of us. And let's remember that we're not doing this alone. We are doing this as a collective people. New City Church, Jesus is restoring God's house and us as the New City family. We get to do this together. All the while worshiping King Jesus. Let's pray. God, your word is good. Jesus, you are a, an excellent Savior that came to restore all things. Jesus, you came to restore our lives from mourning to joy, but you also came to restore the whole earth, to restore your temple, to restore your house, to restore us collectively as an entire people. God, you're making all things new. Father, we, may we just celebrate and sing and, and remember that you, that you came for us and that you're working in our hearts and you're working in our lives and that you love us dearly. Father, we need you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.